following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we're in the series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, working our way through a sermon that Jesus preached uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been talking uh, about this. We're, we're in this part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about not doing stuff to be seen by other people, but doing things towards God alone. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, serving other people, doing, doing something for other people in a way that was anonymous. Did anybody do that? Very good. Very good. You see? You see? You're learning. You didn't put up your hands. I know you've all done it, but you didn't let on. You've done it. That was a test. And you passed. And then last week, Randall brought a word on prayer. That was, that was good, wasn't it? Covering the whole of the Lord's Prayer in one message. That was, that was great. That was ambitious, but really good. Uh, just to remind us, call us back to the importance of developing a deep, rich prayer life. And I hope you were encouraged and challenged through that. So this morning, uh, we move on to this peculiar topic of fasting. That's what we're looking at this morning. Yolandi's going to come and read this passage for us in Matthew chapter 6. Thanks, Yolandi. Come on up. Good morning, church family. So when you fast, do not look somber at the hip, as the hypocrites, for um, they disfigure their faces to show, um, sorry, to show that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Thank you. All right, now, is, has anybody here ever done the uh, 40-hour famine? Yep, yep, a few hands, yes. These days, I think they call it the 40-hour challenge now, which is, that's really the soft Easy out version, isn't it? You know, like back in my day, I sound like an old man now, back in my day, it was the real deal. You know, it was a 40-hour famine, and we were famished by the end of it. It was the full 40 hours. Like a, Looking back now as a teenager, that was quite a full-on thing. You know, 40 hours that we did, we fasted from food, and World Vision, you know, so we were raising money for, for a group somewhere in the world, living in poverty, and we did the fast. I think you could do the 20-hour fast if you didn't want to do the full 40 uh, and I remember youth group days, and we'd have a Saturday night thing during the 40-hour fast, and we'd come together, we're all really hungry, and play games, and <laughs> be hungry together. And then I would try and time my fast so that it finished on Sunday lunchtime. And because that, on Sunday lunchtime, our family went to grandma's for a roast dinner. So I always tried to aim for that, and that was like the best roast dinner that you've ever tasted after 40 hours of no food than to get to grandma's for a roast dinner. Oh, that was great. But the best thing about the 40-hour famine was these things. Anyone remember barley sugars? These were fantastic. I mean, I think I only ever ate barley sugars in my life during the 40-hour famine. It's the only experience I've had of barley sugars. But I went and bought a packet this week, and they're really good. So I'm going to have to get back into some barley sugars because that's what kept us going on the 40-hour famine. That's all you could have. But these were delicious. It was worth doing the 40-hour famine just for that. Obviously, there's other reasons as well. I thought um, maybe you guys in the youth group could have these this morning to keep you going during the sermon. What do you reckon? There you go. You can dish those out. Oh, sorry, Kyle. 
uh, it might help you get through a, a long sermon. So I, I start with that simply because I think the 40-hour famine may be just about the only reference point that most of us have for fasting. It's such a peculiar concept. It's so unfamiliar to most of us. Maybe the only other context would be some kind of health fast. Like there's that fad of intermittent fasting. I think that's been quite a big dietary thing in the last few years. People intermittently fasting certain hours of the day, that kind of thing. But other than that and the 40-hour famine, we just don't really have a context for fasting. It's so off the radar, I think, for most of us. And I don't know what you think about when you think about fasting, but it may conjure up images of monks and nuns sitting in monasteries and cathedrals, chanting and singing hymns and fasting, maybe this kind of medieval idea that might come to mind. It feels like it is this archaic, outdated, irrelevant, long time ago, nothing to do with the 21st century kind of practice. And I think for that reason, it's just not part of most Christians' experience at all. So we're really cracking something open this morning that is just not part of our usual experience. And yet, when you get to the Bible, it's, it's quite prevalent. There's quite a lot of fasting that goes on, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It has quite a presence in the Bible. We just don't notice it because we don't do it. So we tend to ignore those sections. But what I want to do this morning, because I realize we're talking about a topic that's really not familiar and, and, and really not practiced So we will deal with this passage in Matthew 6, but I also want to just step back and give you a bit of a biblical overview of the practice of fasting. Okay, just look at a a bunch of different verses uh, that help you get a perspective on this Old Testament and New Testament, and we will come to Matthew 6, but we won't start there. Okay, so let me start right up front with a definition. Okay, just a, a simple definition so that we're all on the same page with what we mean when we're talking about fasting. Donald Whitney describes fasting like this. This is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Three important things in that definition. Firstly, fasting is a Christian practice. I know there are other groups that fast. Muslims fast for Ramadan and so on. Fasting's not unique to Christianity, but what we are talking about is the specifically Christian practice of fasting. So we're looking at it from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective. Secondly, fasting is an abstinence from food. Okay, this is what we're talking about. I know there are other types of fasts that you can go through. You could fast from technology, you can fast from social media. Josh suggested this week he might fast from homework. You can no. You can fast from a bunch of things. And that's all good. So all of those things, they're all good forms of self-denial. You can give something up. You can give Coke up for a month. You can give up salt and vinegar chips. You can do whatever you want to do. But we will, for the sake of simplicity and focus and time, we're going to look at the main form of fasting in the Bible, which is fasting from food. Thirdly, fasting is, notice at the end, for spiritual purposes. Okay, I know there are other benefits of fasting, which may be health-related, body-related, diet-related, save money, save time, all of these different things. Those are all, again, good things, but they are all secondary to what we're talking about here. The primary purpose of Christian biblical fasting is spiritual purposes. Okay, we'll look at what some of those purposes are. Okay, we're on the same page so far? Let's look at a couple of examples in the Bible of different fasts that people undertook. First one is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, this is the story of, we're diving straight in here, but it's the story of a king of Judah called Jehoshaphat. 
some of you might be familiar with this from when we did the Royals series. But here's something that happened during the reign of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So here's a situation where Judah, the king of Judah, is facing a massive threat. This is really serious. Three different armies joining together to attack the nation of Judah. Three nations banding together. This is a crisis. This is a national tragedy. This is an imminent and existential threat to the nation of Judah. And what does King Jehoshaphat do? Two things. He calls the people to pray. He inquires of the Lord. And he calls them to fast. Interesting that he doesn't just fast himself. He calls the whole nation to fast. We don't know for how long. I would imagine a few days. But the people of Judah all come together and they fast. He doesn't run around like a headless chicken. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't go to the situation room. He doesn't get his generals together. He prays and he fasts. Here's the first purpose of spiritual fasting. To increase our sense of dependence upon God. That's really what Jehoshaphat's doing when it comes down to it. He's putting himself and he's putting his people in this place of saying, God, we don't know what to do. In fact, he literally says those words if you keep reading the passage. God, we don't know what to do. We've got this vast army coming against us. We don't have a way out of this. We don't have a solution. We've got no idea. But God, we are acknowledging we are totally and utterly dependent upon you. We have nothing in ourselves. We look to you, God. If you don't come through, then we're toast. And God does come through. He comes through dramatically. In fact, he gives a word of prophecy to one of the people in the Israelite community, and he spares the nation of Judah. But this is what fasting does. It puts us in this place of depending upon God. Because what you're doing when you fast, you are taking something that you rely on, food. right? You're taking something really important, something like food is fuel. You, you can't go more than a month or so without food. And we're taking something that we depend on, and we are intentionally putting that aside in our lives. We're intentionally going without that for a period of time in order to say, God, I depend on food for my survival, but I depend on you even more. God, I, I, I rely on food, but I rely on you even more. Fasting is going without something that we depend on in order to increase our dependence upon God. And as we fast, we are saying to God, I don't have it, God, but you do. I can't, God, but you can. I am empty, God, but you are full. I have nothing, but you are everything. I am weak. We're putting ourselves in a place of weakness. That's what you do when you go without food. You are intentionally putting yourself in a place of physical weakness. You get weak. You get tired. You're doing that so that you're saying to God, I am weak, God, but you are strong. And your grace is sufficient for me. 
God, I am powerless, but you are the almighty one who has all the power I need. God, I can't move this mountain, but you can. God, I can't find my way through this, but you can. Oh God, that's the posture of our heart. That's what fasting is, is producing in us, that kind of heart, that kind of spirit, that kind of attitude. And I know you can pray that without fasting, of course, but fasting and prayer go together. You see that in Jehoshaphat's life, prayer and fasting. Fasting without prayer is pretty empty. That's just not eating. But true biblical Christian fasting is interwoven with prayer. So the times you're not eating, you're praying. Instead of meals, you're coming and seeking God's face, and you're learning to hunger and thirst for His presence in your life. That doesn't mean, by the way, that fasting is a way of getting God to do what you want Him to do. Right? Sometimes you can go down that road, can't you, of thinking, well, if I fast, maybe I've got a 95% chance of getting my prayers answered. If I don't fast, it's only 50. So I'm going with fasting. That's not how the maths works. Okay? This is not a maths equation. This is not about cajoling God into doing what you want him to do. It's not about, I've got this prayer, I really need God to come through, I'm going to fast, and then it'll happen. You cannot obligate God to do anything, including by fasting. You cannot place God in your debt. You cannot twist God's arm or manipulate him into doing something for you, no matter how much you pray and no matter how long you fast for. God is no person's debtor. But what you are doing is adding intensity to your prayer when you fast. You're adding urgency to your prayer when you fast. You're adding a certain fortification to your prayer when you fast and placing yourself in that position of crying out to God and saying, God, I depend totally and fully upon you. So fasting increases our sense of dependence upon God. Then the second thing fasting does is it increases our devotion to God. I want to look at another fast, this time in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, we have this interesting fast that Daniel and his friends undertake. Daniel's been brought into the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's training up in the Babylonian ways. Uh, he's sort of an advisor to the king, and part of being there and doing what Daniel's doing means eating the king's food. That's what he's expected to do. But Daniel makes this, takes the stand and he says, I'm not going to eat food from the king's table. I'm not going to touch the royal food and the royal wine. And when he gets questioned about this, here's what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. So this is a different kind of fast, isn't it? This is not a full fast. It's a partial fast. It's a fast of all food except vegetables for 10 days. There was a whole thing made about this uh, 10 years ago or so. Christians got all excited about this. There was a book that came out. Rick Warren wrote a book called The Daniel Plan, and it was based on this fast that Daniel did and kind of made it a model for people to go on these fasts. And I don't know exactly, maybe it was just a vegetable-only diet and it was kind of all about, you know, looking after our bodies and doing all of the stuff. And, you know, there's good that can come out of that. But you've got to remember the primary purpose of Daniel's fast wasn't for health reasons. This comes back to the definition of fasting, right? Daniel didn't fast to lose weight, 
right? Daniel didn't fast for the health benefits. Daniel fasted to devote himself fully to God. In fact, this fast of Daniel's is really about allegiance, that act of eating from the king's table, eating the king's food, eating the king's wine, drinking the king's wine. That would have symbolized total allegiance to the king. And Daniel says, no, I'm not going to do that. He's there in the Babylonian court, but he says, I'm not going to swear allegiance to the king. My allegiance is to God alone. And he takes the stand, even though he learns a whole lot of other Babylonian things. He says, the one thing I won't do is eat from the king's table. That would be giving my allegiance to the king. But I'm giving my allegiance to God alone. And so this fast was a way of Daniel and his friends declaring that they have allegiance to God, not to King Nebuchadnezzar, not to the gods of Babylon. That's what we're doing in a different kind of way when we fast, is we are increasing our sense of devotion and our allegiance to God. Because think about this. When you fast, you are saying no to something. What are you saying no to? Well, at a basic level, food. Right? You're saying no to food. You're saying no to your body. Right? This is the first thing you come face to face with when you fast, is that your body starts protesting. Because your body is like, what in the world are you doing? There's food right there. Why are you not putting it in my mouth? This is like so counterintuitive. But we are saying no to a basic craving, a basic instinct that we have in order to cultivate a certain sense of self-denial and self-control. We're, we're living out something that Jesus said when he, when he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We are denying ourselves. We're learning not just to give ourselves everything we want all the time. That's called self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. That's a good thing. Fasting is one way of helping you develop the fruit of self-control. At a broader level, though, what we're doing when we fast is we are saying no to so much of what is in our culture. Because we live, particularly within Western culture, our culture is so characterized by greed, isn't it? All kinds of greed. Right, we'll talk about money and possessions next week, but including greed after just basic food, whatever kind of food we want, whenever we want to have it, in whatever quantity we want to have it. Our culture is characterized by gluttony and indulgence and excess, that we have this kind of innate sense of entitlement that we should be able to satisfy whatever cravings we want, whenever we want to satisfy them with as much as we want to satisfy them. That's just our basic, we feel like it's a human right. Meantime, millions of people around the world are starving and sending their kids to bed hungry while we are stuffing ourselves with all the food that we want. We live in this hyper-consumptive culture where it's all about more, 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 more. When we choose to step into a period of fasting, we are saying no to that. We are very quietly, just before God, not other people, but we are just quietly saying, I'm not into that. I am not buying into the story that my culture tells me to buy into, which is the story of always needing more, always needing more, always needing more. I'm swimming upstream from all that. I'm not going to just buy into that, but instead I'm going to go without. So we're saying no to food. We're saying no to our own desires. Sometimes we're learning a bit of self-mastery. We're saying no to the greed and indulgence of Western culture. What are we saying yes to? We're saying yes to God. We're saying, yes, God, I want to be more fully devoted to you. We're turning away 
from food. We're turning away from our culture for a period of time so that we can face fully towards God and seek Him, really seek Him, really seek His face. So what you do as you're fasting is when you start feeling that hunger, you don't need to ignore that hunger. Let yourself feel it, and then you channel it. You take, that, you take those hunger pangs and you channel them towards God. And you say, God, this hunger, this physical hunger that I'm feeling right now, I pray that you would turn that into a spiritual hunger for you. God, I want to be hungry for you. I want to hunger and thirst after the things of God. Are you hungry for God? Do you thirst for His presence? Most of you don't. That's why God's brought us this discipline, because we don't have this desire. We don't care most of the time. And through the discipline of fasting, we say, God, I pray that you would give me a little bit more passion in my spiritual life. Give me a little bit more longing after you. Help me to pray the prayer of David who prayed, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul thirsts after you. Can you pray that to God with any honesty at all? And if not, then Jesus is speaking to you. And Scripture is speaking to you. And if you've got a desire, you know the other week we talked about just having a hunger for the hunger. That we don't feel this hunger a lot of the time. We've just got the beginnings of a little desire. That's good. God will take that. And he'll say, let me just start with that. And I will nurture that. And I'll give you a greater hunger. That's what we are doing when we're fasting. We are saying, God, I'm just really hungry right now. But even more than that, I want to be hungry for you. God, forgive me for the fact that I am so much more hungry for food than I am for your presence. That's an indictment on my soul. God, I want to be as hungry for you, as hungry for your abundant life, as hungry for your presence and your power and your working in my life as I am for a cheeseburger. I want to be hungry after you, God. That's what we're seeking. That's what we're saying. And the very fact that most of us are so blasé about this is exactly why this practice exists. So fasting increases our sense of dependence on God. It increases our sense of devotion towards God. Now, by the time of Jesus, let's come to Matthew 6. By the time of Jesus, fasting had become a regular practice. Many Jews, most Jews, um, engaged in fasting. So really different to today. Like when Jesus talks about fasting, he can start by saying, when you fast. He doesn't even say, if you fast. He just assumes this was happening. This would not be the case today, would it? But Jesus says, when you fast, and what Jesus is doing is giving us a warning about how we fast. And he's saying, if you're going to do this, don't do it to show off. Don't do it to be seen by other people. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the hypocrites were doing. When they fasted, they would make sure everybody knew it. So they would go around looking really tired. They'd look all bedraggled. They'd look that you know, they'd make do whatever they needed to do, make their faces look all gaunt, so that everybody would look at them and go, "What a spiritual Pharisee!" They wouldn't say, "What a hypocrite!" They'd say, "What a spiritual person!" Look at the sacrifice. Look at the cost. And that's what they wanted. They wanted the applause. Jesus says, "Don't do that. When you fast, make it make it not obvious. Make make sure other people don't know." that you're fasting. You're fasting before God alone. Make sure that if you step into this practice, that your fasting is before God alone, not to be seen by other people. What does that mean in the 21st century? It means that if you're going to fast, you don't post a picture on Instagram of you with barley sugars. 
You don't, you don't drop some hints so everyone knows what's going on. You don't post a photo of you with all this food around you going, guess what I'm not having today, not having any of this. Don't let on. Don't fast at a time when you've got a big social occasion that involves food because it will just be obvious to everyone else. And maybe that's what you want because you want to be seen. You've got to put that aside. You've got to crucify that. That's the flesh. You've got to crucify that and say, who am I? What is this about? This is about fasting before God and God alone. If it's not towards God, then it's worthless. If you're just fasting to be seen by other people or to get some benefit for yourself, that's not true biblical fasting. It is to increase our heart's devotion to God and God alone. So Jesus is saying, check your motives before you do this. And don't do it just to be seen to other people who think you're a spiritual person. You fast towards God alone. All right, now let me just... um, speak personally for a minute, and I want to just talk about the experience, the actual experience of fasting a bit, because I've, I've, fasting has not been a big part of my Christian journey. I'm, I don't come across, I don't want to come across like some expert on this. I've fasted from time to time. It's not been a big thing in my life, as it has been for other Christians, but here's the major thing that God has taught me about fasting. I think there can be a perception that if you fast you are going to have this incredible spiritual experience and you will have this amazing feeling of the presence of God and you will feel the touch of the Holy Spirit tingling down your neck and the angels will descend upon you and you will know there will be like a dove from heaven that comes down and lands on your shoulder and you'll have this amazing experience. And honestly, some, some of the stuff that gets written about fasting makes it sound like that's always going to be the case. Maybe for some people it is. Maybe for some there is an amazing Uh, emotional, visceral experience that comes out of fasting. That has not been my experience. And honestly, I I went into it thinking that's what it was going to be. And I was disappointed because that's not what it was. I'll I'll tell you about my experience of fasting. The first thing that happened when I stopped eating, what do you think it was? I got hungry. That was a huge surprise to me. (laughs) I felt hungry. Now, here's the next question. What happens when you feel hungry? You get hangry. You get irritable. You get grumpy. You get, you know, all the other adjectives that you could put in there. And that was me. And I became like the worst version of myself because I just wanted food. This is that fasting brings you face to face with what a spoiled child your stomach really is. And you're just like, what is going on here? And I just suddenly, well, not suddenly, but I, I, I did. I felt irritable. And then what happens then is that it becomes then a place of temptation because you are then tempted to respond in a grumpy way to other people around you. I'm not a nice person to be around when I'm fasting. I'm a bit angry and a bit grumpy and a bit irritable. So then I'm not treating other people as well as I could be. And when you're just sitting alone with your thoughts and you're just hungry and you're tired as well because then you start feeling a bit lethargic, you start feeling a bit weak, then your mind can be full of unhealthy thoughts. So there's more temptation coming your way. So I know it might sound like I'm trying to scare you off. I'm not. But what I do want you to have is realistic expectations. Because if you go into this thinking, I am, go- it's going to be like me and Jesus, arms around each other, buddy, buddy, we're going to be amazing when we fast. You will not only be disappointed, you will possibly leave yourself open to spiritual attack. Fasting can be a time when the evil one comes along and tempts you. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? 
See, just a, a couple of chapters before the Sermon on the Mount, what do we find Jesus doing? Fasting. He's in the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. Now, don't try that. But this is what Jesus did, went through this 40-day fast. And it was exactly in that place that Satan came along. There's no coincidence there at all. It was while Jesus was fasting, the evil one came to him and tempted him. Now, Jesus came through those temptations, but I think there's a lesson there for us. In that space of fasting, it can be a space of temptation. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to prepare you. And here's the way I would frame it. Fasting is not a mountaintop experience. It is a wilderness experience. I think we've got to get our heads and hearts around this. Fasting, don't expect it to be this great spiritual mountaintop. It's more like the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of struggle, and it's a place of difficulty, and it's a place of pain. It was for Israel. They went through the wilderness for 40 years. It was a place of difficulty. It was for Jesus. He went through the wilderness for 40 days. It was a place of difficulty. It was a place of struggle for him. The wilderness is a hard place. But when you expect that, and when you know that's coming, then you can prepare for it. Then going into your fast, you can pray and ask God to fortify you and strengthen you for what's coming. And you're not naive about it. And you don't have unrealistic expectations that aren't likely to be met. But you can say, God, I pray you'd put on the armor of God on me so that I can resist whatever temptation comes my way. When you expect fasting to be a wilderness experience, you can make a plan for your fast so that you don't just aimlessly ramble into it. But you know when the times are that you're going to take to pray, and you know maybe some specific prayer points that you're going to focus on in that time. Maybe you've got some particular passages of Scripture that you're going to read. Perhaps you talk to one other person and ask them to pray for you during your fast. Not a whole lot of people, because we're not doing it to be seen by others. One person. And you can ask them, would you uphold me in prayer? I'm going to do this 24-hour fast. I pray you would pray protection and blessing over me while I do this. That's going into fasting, recognizing it's a wilderness experience. Then you can be prepared. You can make a plan. And even though it's a wilderness experience, the wilderness, we know, is a place of transformation. That wilderness is a place where our lives are changed. Right? That's, that's also true for Israel. It was in the wilderness they were refined. They were tempted. They were tested. They were brought through it. They were changed. The wilderness was a place where Jesus drew near to the Father, and He came through the temptations, and He returns to Nazareth in the power of the Holy Spirit. The wilderness is a place where God will work in your life, but I don't want you to expect that's going to come through dramatic feelings. It's not about emotions. You may not have that, but it's just like the song we were singing this morning, Waymaker. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Fasting is a testimony to that reality. Even though you may not see it, God is working. Even though you may not feel it, He's working. Even though you might feel the opposite of how you think you should be, God is working and His Spirit is moving. God will work in that time of fasting, no matter what your experience of it is like. God will work to draw your heart a little closer to Himself. He will work to build a bit more self-control into your life than you have now. If you're lacking self-control, this is a discipline to step into. You may be lacking self-control in a totally different area of your life, but fasting helps you build self-control that can then spill over into other things. Through fasting, God will draw your heart a little closer to His heart. He'll remind you that He is your Father. He'll remind you that you are His son, you are His daughter. 
and he will shape you and mold you a little bit more and conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God will do these things. It may not be feelings. may not be accompanied by great emotions, but you can trust that as we step into this, our heavenly Father will work through it to refine us and shape us and remind us that we are his beloved and his favor really does rest upon us. So I want to encourage you that if you sense the Holy Spirit prompting your heart this morning, some of you may, some of you absolutely not. That's okay. If you've got a sense that God is calling you to this, I want to encourage you to step into it. I want to encourage you over the next couple of weeks to make a time, find a time when you say, I'm going to fast on this particular day. Don't announce it. Don't put it on Instagram. You just decide before God that this is what you're going to do. And I would encourage you not to start with a really long fast. Don't say, hey, I'm going to be like Jesus. If he did 40 days, I can do 40 days. Don't start with 40 days, for heaven's sake. Go, think much, much smaller than that. I remember when Anna and I were at seminary, we were living in America, and we did a class on spiritual disciplines, and one of the classes was on fasting. So we thought, that sounds like a good idea. We'll try this. So we did this. It was really ended up being a 36-hour fast. So we started one evening, went through the next day, broke the fast the following morning. So that following morning, Anna had a couple of bits of peanut butter toast to break the fast, and then we were flying from Cincinnati to Seattle on that day. Well, we got to the airport, and Anna started to feel awful. She ended up throwing up at the airport, having the worst plane ride, feeling completely grotty because she had just fasted for more than her body was really capable of fasting for in a healthy way. She's just not built for it. She's very small build. There's not much of her. And fasting was just not, a, not for that period of time, wasn't a great idea. Maybe a shorter fast, 36 hours was too much. So you have to be wise about this. Please think about what is reasonable for you. And what is wise, start small. You can always do a, do a longer fast down the track, but start small. If you have any underlying health issues, especially if you have any sort of eating disorder, please do not fast from food. There are other ways you can fast. There are other things you can fast from. You can fast from technology. You can fast from social media. Those are all good things that may bring about a, the same, bear the same fruit in your life. So please be wise about this. Please know yourself. Uh, perhaps talk to another trusted person before you step into it. I'd encourage you, if you, if you do feel, yeah, you know, I can, I, I can do this, and I've got a sense God's calling me into this, start with just one or two meal a day fast, like within a 24-hour period of time, just fast for breakfast and lunch, or just fast for lunch, and use that time to pray. Don't just go through your day as you normally would, but during the time that you would normally eat, Find a space, find some time, and dedicate yourself to really praying and really seeking after God. Again, don't chase feelings. Don't chase emotions. Do this quietly, not in an obvious way. Don't celebrate it. Don't post about it afterwards. You just do it before the Lord and see what God does in your life. Let me finish with one story, and then we're done. There's a guy named Jeremiah Lanfear. He lived in the 1850s in New York City. He was a businessman, not, not a pastor, not a missionary. He was a businessman. And he just had a real desire to reach the people of New York City for Jesus and let people know about the gospel. And so he decided to start a prayer meeting. And Jeremiah was a pretty ambitious guy. He produced 60,000 flyers for his prayer meeting. And he went out giving these away door to door, all these people all across the city of New York, inviting 
60,000 people to this prayer meeting. Well, the day of the prayer meeting came, and Jeremiah sat there in this little room of Fulton Street Chapel in New York City, all by himself. And for the first half hour or so, nobody showed up. It was just him praying. After about 30 minutes, he heard footsteps outside. One other person came in, and then another person, and then another person. By the end of that first prayer meeting, six people had showed up. The week after that, a few more came. The week after that, a few more, and a few more, and a few more, and this thing started building and gathering momentum. After a while, the rooms in the church were full, and they had multiple prayer meetings at the same time. The stairwells were having prayer meetings. The, the corridors, people in their corridors having prayer meetings. They had to move them into the sanctuary to create space. And then Jeremiah made the decision to make these prayer meetings every day rather than just once a week. And they were at 12 p.m., Monday to Friday. Isn't that the worst time for a prayer meeting? 12 p.m. to 1 p.m., Monday to Friday. But what happened is churches across New York City started following what Fulton Street Chapel were doing and having the same 12 to 1 prayer meeting. People were literally running out of their offices, running out of their factories to try and find the nearest church to get to at 12 midday to pray for an hour. And that prayer was accompanied by fasting. It's one of the features of that movement. I don't know whether people prayed every, uh, fasted every day or just once a week, but they would fast over that lunchtime hour as they came together and they prayed. What began as a prayer movement of six people in that first prayer meeting grew to 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. It started spreading to other cities around the U.S., Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago. Eventually, it spread to the U.K. Massive movement of prayer and fasting and revival it's estimated that between 1857 and 1859, over a million people in America came to know Jesus through that prayer and fasting revival. Because people would just come into these prayer meetings not knowing what was going on and just get a sense there was something happening there and through that be drawn to Christ, come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and come to faith. It's known as the layman's prayer revival because it wasn't driven by pastors and it wasn't organized by missionaries. It was organized by factory workers and business people across New York City. Just humble, ordinary Christians who had a burden to pray and fast for their city, for themselves, for their church, for their communities. And through it, God did some pretty extraordinary things. It's just one example. And you can look through history so often when God has moved and revival has happened, it is accompanied by a commitment to prayer and fasting on the people of God. And so I want to encourage you, my friends, and call you. If this is something that God is stirring in your spirit, would you commit to being a man or a woman of prayer and fasting? Those two always have to be woven seamlessly together. Not for any dramatic results. Who knows what God might do? We leave that with Him. But we just commit in our own quiet way before God in the power of the Spirit to simple steps, prayer and fasting. Would you commit to that? And as you do, you can know that the same God of Jehoshaphat, the same God of Daniel, the same God of Jesus is with you. He's right there in the midst of it. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will give you wisdom. He will sustain you. He will work within your heart through that. He will remind you that you belong to Him. Please don't do this because I told you to do it. Please don't do this out of any sense of guilt 
and obligation. Please don't do it to tick a box. Do it if you're hungry for God. Do it if you want to be hungry for God. Do it if you are sick of being a mediocre, stagnant, stunted Christian and you're longing for more. That's why we step into it. That's why God calls us to this. It's done in His name. It's done for His glory. God, I want to pray now for all of my brothers and sisters here that you would take this word, your word, and press it on their hearts as they need to hear it. Lord, I'm really conscious this morning that your word needs to be received in different ways. And your word needs to land on the soil of each heart just in the way, God, that you've ordained it. And so now I I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring that about, God. For those here that you are calling to undertake some sort of fast, if there's a sense of confusion and a sense of uncertainty about that, I want to pray, God, that you would clear that fog. If there's a sense of nervousness and anxiety around that, I want to pray you'd bring peace. I just sense, God, there may be some that are just open but, but worried. And I want to pray, Lord Jesus, you'd bring the peace of your spirit and bring wisdom and bring wise people around, God, that can encourage. God, for some here that are thinking and wondering about fasting from something else, I want to pray now, Holy Spirit, you just bring that to mind. God, if there's something that you're calling us to give up for a time, for a season, for good, would you bring it into our minds now? There's a, there's a big part of us, God, that doesn't want this. There's a big part of our flesh right now that's screaming out against this, but we say, Holy Spirit, we are open and we're willing. And God, where there is just the beginnings of a hunger and a thirst for you, would you take that and enlarge that, Lord, into a great hunger and a deep thirst for your power, your presence, your working in our lives. May we be those, Lord Jesus, that can truly live out that beatitude that you spoke. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.